This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society. And we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. James Lindsay, it's wonderful to have you back. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. Yeah, glad to be here. Good to have you and uh, lots to discuss. Obviously, people can find you at Conceptual James on Twitter. I think that's the the best place. And it was one of your recent tweets uh, that intrigued me, and I've kind of titled it "Shame: The Inner School of the Cult." And I think it's um, where many people are thinking how to win over individuals on certainly from a woke ideology and possibly others. So it's a, I think it's quite an important concept of how we present what is true and win friends, family over to uh, common sense, I guess. But if we can jump in and in that you just discuss that discussion, information and facts rarely work on people trapped in totalitarian ideologies like woke and the link to the tweet uh, i think you put out just a day ago on the fourth um all that is in the description but that that line we'll start with that it was a whole string but discussion information and facts rarely work on people trapped in totalitarian ideologies like woke and i think people have found that during the COVID tyranny but you may want to expand on that a little bit yeah, well, I mean, the, the COVID tyranny is not really different. So, of course, they would find it. It's the same exact ideas, and, and th- whether it's identity politics, whether it's the public health, is that there's good people and there's bad people, and the good people are doing what good people do and are to be venerated, and the bad people are the problem and are to be disliked. But the primary thing that's going on, a lot of people get caught up thinking, well, if they could just see the facts or if they just had common sense or if they just knew what was really going on, or if they just knew this detail or that detail, if they knew that there were drag queens, if they knew that the vaccines weren't as effective as they claimed or weren't as tested as they they advertised or that they would change their mind, that's not true. And I think people experienced that very widely. And what's really going on when you have a totalitarian cult is that what the people that are locked in the cult, most of them, it's not that they lack information. It's that they're suppressing information because what they're afraid of is being shamed for thinking shameful thoughts or what a thought is that's shameful is defined by the cult. So they know that, for example, with the COVID tyranny, that if they don't do it right, then they're they're killing grandma. They're keeping society from being able to be open. They're not doing their part. So it's a shameful thing not to be going along with the the tide of, of public opinion. It's shameful to have the wrong opinions about, you know, some issue to do with race that critical race theory has poisoned or to have the wrong opinion about these, uh, you know, transitions or whatever from queer theory, if you have, well, some poor kid might kill himself and that's something to be ashamed of. And so what they're mostly afraid of is that they will feel ashamed that somebody finds out that they think the wrong kind of thoughts. So you have to think about what would happen if you give that person facts that are the shameful thoughts, according to the cult, they're going to have to suppress those. They're going to have to get away from those. The more believable those facts are, the more irrefutable those facts are, the more obvious the data, the harder they have to work to suppress it because what they're afraid of, they're not concerned at all about truth. 
they say they are, but what they're truly concerned about is being embarrassed and shamed by the cult that controls their social and emotional environment. And of course, there are many tags, I guess, that, that go with it to link with that, um, that you uh, criticize COVID policy and you're a conspiracy theorist, or you criticize the, the trans narrative and you're transphobic. Um, there are many kind of tags that I guess fit into that shame to stigmatize that thinking as against the norm. That's right. That's exactly right. So if you're transphobic, if you're racist, if you're xenophobic, if you're, and, and these are just labels that they're using. I don't mean if you're literally these things, if you're accused of these things, if you are, um, you know, a, against science or public health, or you don't want to stop COVID or whatever it happens to be, then you're caught up in, in, in the shameful pattern. If you have doubts about what they're saying, then you have, the problem was part of you. In, in critical race theory, they called that white fragility, which is shameful. You have a character flaw called fragility that's based on your unwillingness to see, and that's how it's characterized. White fragility is defined as a lack of racial humility and lack of racial stamina to accept the accusation that you're complicit in racism that takes place on the systemic level, whether you think you are or not. And so the idea is that if you refuse these accusations, then there's something to be deeply ashamed of. And this isn't mere speculation, by the way. If you read the analyses like from Robert J. Lifton, who is very famous for studying the psychology of Mao Zedong's China during the Cultural Revolution and before. Actually, a lot of people think the Cultural Revolution is when Mao took over. Mao took over, the Cultural Revolution started in 1966. Mao actually took power in 1949. So there was almost 15, 16 years of Maoism before the Cultural Revolution took place. Mao used the Cultural Revolution to get power back because he temporarily lost it uh, after the Great Leap Forward. So during that time, they were trying to do what got translated as thought reform. They were trying to brainwash people into accepting the program of CCP uh, and, and the religion of Mao in China. And it usually worked. It didn't always work. So they would send people to prisons. They would send people to, to thought reform centers or schools. And if they couldn't get them to change their mind adequately, they would exile them from China during the 1950s. And, and it turns out Lifton was sitting there in Hong Kong and became interested. He was supposed to leave Hong Kong, but he became very interested in studying these people that were getting exiled from the CCP China and studying their psychological condition. So he ended up getting a grant to stay on in Hong Kong for an additional 18 months and interviewed dozens and dozens of these people for his kind of seminal work on the issue, which is called Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, one of the more important books to read. And he talks about in there that Mao's cult, the way that it actually works, is through leveraging feelings of shame, that you've done something bad that you can't even quite understand why it's bad. And what he said is that the the, the, the psychology is actually pretty exquisite. What, what it convinces you of is that you are the only person who doubts. And so you have these shameful doubts. Maybe you believe something that they say is a conservative belief about immigration. That's shameful. But don't tell anybody that you have that. And more importantly, don't let anybody find out that you think that at all. Not just don't tell. Nobody can find out that you doubt the narrative. And so what do you do? You go become a avid supporter of the narrative. You run your mouth about it. You refuse to listen to, to arguments or information or data or, count, or you know 
contrary points of view because somebody might find out that you believe a shameful thing. And so this, this runs very, very deep. And this is a psychology literally of totalitarianism. It leaves you feeling isolated and alone, like you're the only person who doubts this obvious absurdity. And so you overcompensate by de over demonstrating belief. And when you're presented with facts or data or truth, you it, it won't change your mind because you're already suppressing facts, data, and truth. Your your main psychological activity is suppressing something so that you don't get seen as somebody who has shameful ideas. So you heap to give people those facts just gives them more that they have to repress and more that they have to lash out about. So what you end up with is what in psychology they call the backfire effect. You tell them the truth and it makes them believe their crazy cult ideology even more. It backfires to tell them the truth. Well, we've certainly found out, I mean, there are probably two sides to this. One, people who've lived through something and people who see it. You see people with CCCP tops, uh, Soviet Socialist Republic, USSR uh, tops, and they actually look back to that, I guess, communist ideology as something beneficial. They, they haven't experienced that. They've read something about it or seen a meme. But then the other side is actually those who've lived through something. So I guess those who lived through COVID have pushed, have encouraged people maybe to get jabbed, to lock down, not to see loved ones. And then they see the, um, the side effects of that. So I guess there are two. One is guilt and shame with actually living through something and pushing. Um, another is kind of the 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 communist ideal of promoting that while not actually understanding it. Yeah, the both of those are very common with with the idea. I mean, it's it's a very it's almost a meme itself where it talks about the idealistic young person in the West trying to explain to somebody who grew up in the Eastern Bloc. <laughs> you know, how great communism really was and how what they experienced wasn't real communism and all of this. And it, it's sort of just hilarious. It turns out to be very easy to be a socialist in a comfortable Western uh, free market society. It turns out to be very hard to be a free individual under communism. And so there is this kind of hilarity of, of low information and ignorance and idealism. And that's very typical of kind of disconnected, somewhat wealthy, somewhat entitled young people who get wrapped up in these ideologies and these movements because they haven't lived through things. Now, on the other hand, there's a second layer of this guilt and shame. Like, let's say that you got the jab just as anything. It doesn't matter what the, the object is. Well, let's say you got the jab and then, or even more, you forced your child to get the jab. Okay. So you're in this situation and let's say that information comes across your plate that makes you believe that maybe that wasn't safe. Maybe that wasn't a good idea. Maybe you went around and shamed people to try to make them get it. Hey, man, you need to do it. You need to do your part. We're all doing this. I did it. When are you going to do it? And you browbeat people and bully people. And maybe you convince some people to get it. And then you all of a sudden become convinced. Some data comes across that you can't deny. And you have this doubt. Maybe it wasn't good. Maybe it was bad. So now you've done a bad thing. And the only way for you to be able to admit that, what, that, that you you know, did something bad. The only way for you to accept the information is to admit that you did something bad, I should say. And that is a huge ask. And this is actually fairly well documented in the psychology around backfire effect and cognitive dissonance. Um, and the most common and cheapest and easiest way to resolve that dissonance is in fact to 
go further and deeper into your belief. No, the jab must have been good because you don't want to reckon with the fact that you went and did something harmful to other people, especially if it's children. It turns out that it's really, really a lot stronger if you've done something that harms children, especially your own children. So you can see this play out, not just with the jab. You see this very, very strongly with the transition issue. You have parents whose children have, from whatever reason, whether it's the media, whether it's the schools, whether it's their peer group, somehow they've picked up social media, some idea that there may be trans. And they come home and they say, I am trans, blah, blah, blah. And you don't know what to do as a parent. And so you think, well, I'll affirm this. I'm going to do everything right. Let's take them to a clinic. Let's get them to, to gender clinic and have them. Let's socially affirm. Let's do the pronouns. Let's endorse their name. Let's buy them new clothes. Let's try to socialize them that way. Let's take them to look at puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones or whatever. And then you irreparably damage your child, either psychologically or much more importantly, if you get into the puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or surgeries, physically, you have per permanently altered your child, maybe caused sterility, maybe removed healthy tissues. I mean, there's lots of, lots of things that you could have done. Imagine what it takes to admit that you hurt your child because you thought you were doing the right thing. It's something that the rare individual will be able to do, but many people will just become rampant advocates for, uh, for the ideology instead, rather than admit that they did wrong or in religious language, rather than repent for their sin, uh, they will instead turn that sin outward and use it to try to, to promote the ideology itself, to try to prove that the ideology must have been right, that the activity must have been right. This is classic psychology. This is a classic phenomenon. And communists understand this and exploit it routinely over and over and over again, routinely exploit this. And that's what we've been living through with each of these different things that seem so different. They're all just attacks on this exact same uh, kind of pathway. Well, the, the trans is one. Maybe we'll touch on the, the, the COVID side because I, I, I'm i just back from Bucharest, the International COVID Summit for International Crisis Summit. I know you uh, were speaking at the ICS3 Summit in Brussels um, and that presentation on woke ideology. And, and you obviously heard many of the, the speakers there uh, for for Bucharest. It was two days. It was maybe 80 speakers. Presentation of so many issues uh, generally fixed on the COVID tyranny, but even wider. Um, and you realize there is so much information, so much data, everything is out there in, in black and white. Um, and you kind of bring that over to engaging with uh, with friends, with family. Uh, I, I guess you're going against everything they hold dear, that trust in institutions, trust in government, trust in their doctor, trust in the data, um, and immediately come across, I guess, that barrier, that, that line where they simply cannot accept because all their lives have been conditioned, certainly in the West, to accept that uh, what the media is good, government is good, very different from a communist system. But um, so, I mean, talk to us about pushing back against that and I guess false belief in the institutions. Yeah, that's actually really big. Um, and that is a very common, I mean, I know that I had that and I think that it's actually the dividing line and the primary dividing line in society is people who still trust the institutions and think everyone else should and people who have realized that our institutions are not trustworthy. Uh, that's, I think, the primary dividing line and it's a very, very challenging 
uh, dividing line. Because again, let me just go into the psychology before we go to the pushing back. Imagine that you're facing the situation that all of a sudden you can't trust your doctor, you can't trust the media, you can't trust the government, you can't trust public health officials or the National Medical Services. And you find, where where are you? If suddenly, let's say that you, you as they say, red pill to tomorrow, and all of a sudden, where are, where are you that you don't know who to trust or who to turn to? You're adrift. You're lost. You're not just on your own and having to take responsibility. It's very easy to get moralizing about this and say, oh, well, people are just afraid to take responsibility for their lives. No, literally, they're entering into a world where they used to know how to deal with questions about their health that are very important questions, for example, or with social interaction. And now they don't know how to answer those questions. They used to think that they understood how to get information about what's going on in the world and form a uh, res socially responsible or, or, you know, politically responsible opinion so they could vote according to what they think is the best for their society. And now they don't know how to gather that information anymore. So what happens is these people are adrift. So the psychology, again, is exquisite. The psychology leads. It's much easier to call the person providing them with these facts and data, conspiracy theorists and lunatics and dangerous and extremists, it's much easier to say that they're somehow a problem than it is to deal with the fact that, I don't want to say life just got harder, but that's what you'll perceive. The fact is that you are going to have to admit that life has not been as easy as you thought it was, which is a slightly different thing. And so it's a very different set of psychological, both of these environments that we've been talking about require a very different set of tools than the, hey, let me give you some facts and explain uh, what the truth is. And obviously you'll just want to go along with what's true because what most people want to avoid is massive amounts of psychological discomfort, which could be guilt or shame. It could also be um, that tremendous fear of the unknown. Uh, there's a book written, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, or in 2019, so a few years ago, called How to Have Impossible Conversations. We actually talk about this, but one of the key source material books that we used, I know we're not supposed to use the word Harvard in a positive light, but it came out of a group called the Harvard Negotiation Project. Um, and they wrote a book called Difficult Conversations maybe 10 years earlier, so maybe 2008, 2009. It might actually be older than that. I can't remember. The, the paperback is purple. I remember that. But um, they actually have this section in the book. And I actually, last night I was thinking, coincidentally, I need to go back and reread that particular section and really understand what they're saying, that chapter maybe. Because what they say is that when you have any kind of a conversation, the conversation is taking place on three levels at once. And if there's a, dis the, the levels are hierarchical. So the deeper levels take priority uh, psychologically over the more shallow levels. So the facts of the matter, what they f refer to as what's happening is the very surface level. That's the most superficial level. In other words, people don't really care. But the thing is, is everybody wants to look like they're talking about what's happening. Like, oh, well, what are the facts? What are the statistics? And that's why they'll conjure up their statistics versus the other person's statistics and they'll fight it out. But what's actually underneath that, there's a layer of of conversation that's the emotional level. A conversation takes place between two people, ultimately, or two, uh, you know, a number of people. And if there's an emotional discord, like let's say that for some reason, I just don't like you, right? Whatever you're saying to me, you might be saying stuff that's completely right. And especially, you know, I'm not going to forgive you if you're right in making me look like a fool. There's an emotional level. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to feel ashamed. 
all of that stuff. That's the second layer down. And what the, the Harvard Negotiation Project people say is that when there's an emotional mismatch going on in the conversation, the what's happening, you still think you're fighting about what's happening, but you're not even talking about that. That conversation's not even happening. And typically, nobody fully knows that you're actually having an argument about how you feel instead of having an argument about the facts. But then there's a third layer deeper than that, which is identity. And that's where the shame, the social identity factors, like I'm a good person, or I believe in, you know, I'm an ally to this identity group, or I identify as a, you'll see this a lot where if you say something like that, say a feminist or something is, they're, they're very bad about this. In fact, if you say something, a feminist says something very objectionable and you call her out, she'll turn around and say, look how he talks about women. And it's like, it's like the old scene where Donald Trump got put up with the, with the journalist asking him, well, you called women pigs. And he said, no, I didn't. I called Rosie O'Donnell a pig, <laughs> right? It's like, so which women, I'm not talking bad about women. I'm talking bad about specific badly behaving individuals who are women, or I'm talking kind of broadly and therefore always slightly unfairly about feminists, but feminist and woman are not synonymous. They're not the same idea. There are women, believe it or not, who are not feminists. And <laughs> what a shock, right? And then feminist means 30 things. Then literally go talk to them. None of them agree with each other. They all hate each other. Every group hates each other uh, within when that. So it, it's not a very specific term, but you'll see that jump to the identity as a woman but what they really mean as, as a particular woman who's adopted a lot of ideological baggage, blah, blah, blah. And now it's a fight about identity and a fight about identity. And think of how much of this is identity politics, how much of it is getting young people in particular to believe that who they are in terms of their social group is the most important thing about them. And I mean, not the social group, like the people they hang out with, but the social group in terms of what they happen to look like or who they happen to be attracted to. That's the most important factor about them. So you can't possibly have a conversation about facts because they reinterpret it as an attack on their identity. You hear this again with the trans, you hear it with the COVID. With the trans, you hear, you literally want us not to exist or this is a trans genocide or some nonsense. And with COVID, it's the same thing. You want to kill grandma. You don't care if people get sick. You blah, blah, blah are a conspiracy theorist extremist. But what you're actually attacking is their identity in that case is somebody who identifies as doing their part for society. Or in the case of the trans, they've identified as a trans individual who's adopted that uh, persona. And so for you to say, I don't know if that's really a good idea, you're now attacking their very existence because they've wrapped their existence up with that identity. And so that was a long-winded thing to say. What's actually happening psychologically is that you have to approach these conversations in a different way than you do have to have the facts. You do have to have the figures. You do have to have the truth, but you have to start to unravel the emotional and identity level um, disagreements first. And in fact, that's the way you have to go about them. What is it that you're worried about? Like if, if all these things, crazy people like Dr. Malone are saying about COVID are true, what would that mean about you? That's going to tap into the identity and into the emotional. What would that mean about, you know, are you afraid of what it would mean to have to go to the doctor and not know if you can trust the doctor? I know I have to do a lot of homework before I accept going to a doctor. Now, um, I went to an eye doctor, uh, a a year ago, I guess the previous time I went and it was like, I just got lectured about the vaccine the whole time. And I'm thinking this lady's going to make me go blind. I don't trust this at all. Uh, 
there's a lot of homework that has to go into these things now. And, you know, that's a different conversation to have than to say, well, just look at these facts, look at these figures, just harming people, it's hurting people, there's so many injuries, there's this or that. Um, it's a different conversation and it's a different approach to have. It's, it's literally cult deprogramming. And in, in your thread, you talked about uh, one of the lines from uh, when you're dealing with a totalitarian cult, most of the people involved are in an outer school and you touch on outer and inner and the mm -hmm. outer school barely know any of the doctrine. That, that makes it even more difficult because if you're used to presenting information to having a rational discussion about something, but the person doesn't understand any of that data because they have simply believed something, how do you, I mean, it's a mismatch on the conversation, isn't it? That's right. And the, all of the factors of emotion and identity come into it once you start to deal with a cult. Uh, I'm just going to reiterate real quick that the goal of a totalitarian cult is always to make everybody feel alone. You are the only one who has doubts. Everyone else is all in. And so you're the bad person for having these doubts and you have to keep changing yourself and you have to change other people. That's at, at the bottom of this. But cults are organized really into three layers. And the thread, I only talk about two. And those Two layers are the outer school and the inner school. If you wonder where I got that terminology, by the way, I adopted it from, um, it's a martial arts term in China. There's uh, the people who the teacher shows how to do the moves and but doesn't really tell them how to use the martial arts techniques. And that's the outer school. So you can go learn the form and you can learn to punch and kick, but they don't show you how the technique actually works. They, As they phrase it in Chinese, they don't tell you what the techniques mean. And then there's the inner school where you've proven your loyalty and they'll show you actually what it feels like, for example, to have the technique done to you. So like, I don't know how much we need to get into this, but if you've ever wrestled, you can watch a guy do a wrestling move over and over and over again, and you can go try it and you might as well uproot a tree with your bare hands as make it work. But when the guy comes and does the wrestling move to you and you feel how his weight shifts and you feel how he pulls you off balance or you feel how he lifts you up onto his hip and then turns, when you actually feel it, then you know what it means. And that's the difference between outer and inner school, what they call Jia and Jia in Chinese, uh, the outer and inner meanings. So the outer school of a cult doesn't know the cult's doctrine much at all. They hear it. They they know you're supposed to check your privilege or whatever it's supposed to be. They know the words. They mimic the words. They say the words. They believe in the words. But the main thing that they are caught up in is a social environment and uh, emotional cues. So they're made to feel good when emotionally they're accepted. They're affirmed when they repeat the cult doctrine or activities or practice. And they're punished when they don't. And it's done so more softly at first and harsher as you go along because they have to keep you interested at the beginning and then they have to deepen your commitment later. This is typical of all cults. But those people are, their, their mindset is all the people around me think and feel this way. Or it's shameful to think other than this. They've probably been convinced through their own vulnerability, through their own shame they're ashamed of something racist they said in the past. Somebody swoops in, feeds them a bunch of DEI and critical race theory lessons about racism. They feel deeply ashamed. And all of a sudden, they just know that this is what it means to be a good person. And so they're caught there. But they don't know critical race theory. They haven't learned critical race theory yet. They don't know what it's all about. They just know that they're ashamed and there are things they should feel ashamed of. And all the people around them feel this way. And all of the good people 
think this way and bad people think the other way. And it's a very simple expression. That's the outer school. Most of the people in any cult are in an outer school. And in this case, it's even worse. A lot of the people, this isn't a formal cult. You don't go sign up for like, you know, the COVID cult. You don't go down to the courthouse or to the to the lodge and say, I want to be part of the COVIDiots. Um, I'm here for that. That never happens. So it's informal, which means a lot of people have just taken up some of the stuff and they have no idea there's even a cult. They have no idea. They don't know that there's leaders. They have no idea about any, and they don't care. They just think they're being good people. The inner school are people that have become intellectually committed to the doctrine. They have studied if it's CRT or queer theory, or they've gotten like way too involved in, a, in trying to push the public health models if it's COVID or whatever else. And they are the ones who are just going to bombard you with like facts and, and it will distorted facts, propaganda and ideas and theory and so on from the cult interpretation of the world. And they are also still socially and emotionally committed. They still have the sense of shame, but they think they're really doing something about it on a deep, deep level. They are full on into the cult and they are fully intellectually committed, which means to get somebody in the inner school to say that they're wrong means that they have to admit that they were also stupid, that they got tricked not just because people were, and they went along with what people were doing, but because they totally bought into it and became one of them. That's a much higher bar. The main job of the inner school people in a cult is to make sure the outer school people stay connected and in line. The third group, which I didn't talk about in the thread, all cults have a leadership circle or an inner circle. Those people might not even believe it at all. It might be total fraud. They might be all in. They might be complete true believers that got a bunch of people following them. They might be completely cynical, manipulative frauds too. It doesn't matter. But what they do is they are the ones who are making sure that money and facilities and, and the whole structure is all there. And of course, it all ends up, the, the, whatever the grift of the cult is, whether it's praise and, and adoration, if it's a cult of personality, whether it's money, whether it's access to sexual favors or whatever else, all goes to them. So they they run the thing like a giant multi-level marketing scheme that benefits them at the top. So that's the classic kind of pyramid scheme um, with them. But they're a separate issue. The, the goal really would be to break as many of the outer school people off from the cult as you can. The inner school people, some of them you might shake loose, but most of them, I hate to phrase it this way, but are largely a lost cause. And they're proportionally speaking, quite small in number, so it doesn't really matter that much. Well, uh, this was kind of an idea that came out in the International Crisis Summit in Bucharest and also an event uh, I was at the other day with Andrew Bridge, an MP, um, and many experts, including uh, uh, Robert Malone and, and Steve Kirsch and many others. And it was this, how do you bring people over? And a number of the MPs, members of parliament, actually asked this the other day. How do you actually bring people over uh, without pointing out? Um, it, it's not their stupidity, maybe gullibility. No one wants to be gullible. No one wants to be taken for a ride. Everyone wants to have seen through whatever pretense or lies was put in front of them. Um, so it's it's it kind of you present facts, but again, it's that getting past that shame, admitting actually I, I screwed up. Uh, yes, I, I I listened to information that wasn't correct. And and the MPs the other night were asking, how actually do you 
begin to bring people over and and win back, I guess, hearts and minds? Well, I'll tell you, you know, just to preface this, I'm personally, I'm not Christian, but the Christians have a very successful method for this that they've been using for 2000 years and it works extremely well. Um, what they do in essence is a couple of things. They present, or a few things, they present what they call the gospel, which is means the truth. So they tell people what they think the truth is. If you agree with Christian doctrine being true, that's fine. If you don't, it doesn't matter. From the perspective of Christianity, it's true. Okay, so they present the truth. Some people become uncomfortable. They have that feeling. And then the second thing they do is they tell them it's normal. Everybody is a sinner. We all are in need of salvation. So in other words, they don't leave the person feeling stupid and alienated. They leave, they leave the person thinking, wait, this is very common. It happens to a lot of people. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's totally normal. So they break through that wall of shame. It's totally normal for people to fall for a psychological operation, as a matter of fact. There are some statistics out there that suggest that more than if, if, if we launched a psyops, successfully say that we were a military intelligence outfit and we launched a psyops on a population the target population as many as 80 or 90 percent of the population will fall for it initially the covid psyops was unbelievable in how unified the messaging was how overwhelming and emotional and powerful it played into fear it played into family it played into personal responsibility it played into community responsibility being a good citizen it played into so many things millions upon millions upon millions of people fell for it to the point where, yeah, you got some of these hardcores out there, the super conservatives or whatever, who are like, we told, we knew it from the first day. Well, the fact of the matter is almost everybody had some period of time at the beginning of COVID where they were like, wait, what is this? Is this a big deal? What do we have to do? Maybe it's a good idea to take some precautions, maybe masks, maybe wiping things down, maybe limiting access. There are a lot, maybe lockdowns, are a good idea in the short term. There were a lot of people who fell for this. So you have to get past that shame layer. And Christians are really great at it. Their their doctrine is everybody is, every single person is completely infested with the fall, with sin. And every person therefore needs to take the third step, which is to repent of the sin, which is to say, hey, I screwed up. I can put it behind me. I can take responsibility for that by um, working to live a, you know, more accurate life in the future, accurate to the gospel if it's Christianity, accurate to the truth if it's truth. This model has been extraordinarily successful. Christianity has been, regardless of any other fact, the world's most influential and powerful and dominant religion for a very long time, maybe not all 2,000 years. Um, it had to grow first, but it's been an extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily effective model to get people um, first to hear that there's truth. And then the church always sets itself up. I, I use this phrasing a lot as a landing pad. Hey, look, we don't care that you're a sinner. We don't care that you've done bad. You're welcome here. We want to talk to you. you. We want you to hear what we have to say. You don't have to take a single step till you feel comfortable. They're really good at that. And so everybody, you know, here's the truth. Come listen to it. Listen to it as long as you need to. And when you're ready, just know everybody makes these mistakes. It's part of who we are. There's nothing you can do about it. It's not a big deal that you messed up about this issue. But at the end of the day, you still have to own it. You still have to take responsibility. And you still have to repent for it so that you can move forward. That model works. 
that model, which is adopted straight from the Christian model, can actually pull people out. So how do you bridge this gap? You have to tell people the truth and be a landing pad for them. If you browbeat them and alienate them, it's not going to work. You have to convince them that it's very common for people to have made these mistakes, which means you have to get over your own frustration. The Christians talk about that all the time, getting over your own pride, getting over your own arrogance, trying to convert somebody. You're not supposed to. The Holy Spirit's supposed to convert people. You're supposed to be a landing pad and facilitate them coming to truth themselves. And this is the model. This is how, this is what to do. And it can work again and again. It's very, very common, but hey, guess what? You can't keep living in the mistake when you're ready. Let's let go of the mistake and start moving forward and start undoing any of the damage you might've done. I want to finish off on uh, truth and identity, which you talk about, but actually, can I just say that you're, you and Charlie Kirk on platform at CNP in Miami in February was the highlight of that conference. It was a phenomenal conversation between you both. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of people like that. Um, and, you know, he and I get along extremely well. Uh, and we we do extremely well together on stage having these conversations. People really, it, it resonates with them. It, it gets the information to them. It, it stirs them up and moves them. Charlie's brilliant at pulling information out of me that is useful for people um, and also for re reining me in when I get a little too nerdy <laughs> and making sure I make it accessible for people. Um, yeah. We have a great dynamic. I love that. It was it was the highlight for for my Miami trip. Uh, but can I just to another point? Maybe we'll uh, we'll begin to round up on this. But you say when working with a puritanarian cult, you aren't fighting error, as in they believe in correct things. You're fighting social identity, and you say the challenges that facts and accurate information still matter, but won't matter until the social identity spell. Is broken. I think we've seen this with um, you talk about allies of the the trans movement. Maybe you talk about those who bought in uh, to COVID, and it is a it's a, a herd mentality. It's finding comfort in that identity with others. So tell us about because I think people often believe it is about presenting what is factual and what is true to win them over. But then if that leaves people without an identity, that it's going to go nowhere. Yeah, no, that's not how people operate. People are trying to answer the question, who am I? Far more than they're trying to answer the question, what is true? That is vastly more important. And so they did, and, and there's a whole branch of social psychology called social identity theory that outlines these ideas. And they're so important. So go dabble in that if you have time and you have interest. Um, if you're watching, it's very, very eye-opening. But even if we were to take, let's say, we all went and there's 50 of us at a conference or in a room or whatever. And we said, let's play an icebreaker game. Half of you go to this side of the room and half of you go to that side of the room. And immediately, actually, you start to identify with the side of the room you're put on. Oh, we're on this side. We're the this side people and that's the that side people. So you don't just start to identify with the people that you are. You start to define your identity in terms of who you are not also, who you are against. In other words, you fall into what at the end of the road becomes what's called a friend-enemy distinction. There are the people who are your friends, they're on your team, and then there's the people that you're against. The first big experiment had, I, I think it was the Eagles versus the Rattlesnakes. Just a bunch of boys, teenage boys, they put at a summer camp and arbitrarily named some of them the Eagles and some of them the Rattlesnakes. And they 
literally it went like Lord of the Flies between these two groups after a couple of weeks uh, by kind of stoking and, and prompting them to, to want to go to war with one another. But the key is that you define yourself in terms of the who you are. So let's say that we had this group and we put half of them on one side of the room and half of them on the other. That's pretty arbitrary. But let's say we put all the men on one side and all the women on the other. Well, now you have something that holds you all together that's visible that you immediately, oh, well, we're the men and they're the women. They're the women, we're the men. You know, you have this kind of mentality. So you define yourselves in terms of who you're with. And if you come up with a, a banner, rattlesnakes and eagles, men and women, you know, whatever it happens to be, that strengthens your inside, you know, interpretation of social identity. But you more importantly define yourself as who you are against. And we, we're the men and we're against the women and we're the women and we're against the men. And so social identity becomes this kind of conflict driving thing, but it also is central to how people answer the question, who am I? I'm the person who fits in here. I'm the person who is considered a good and valuable member of this group or this tribe. And um, that's called psychosocial valuation in the literature. You go through processes of evaluating yourself so valuation, how much value do I have in myself and in the eyes of other people and to the group that I'm involved with? And people get people. I would say that that is a variable in people's day to day experience that is 10 times as influential as the truth on their thinking. And so what happens is you end up in these groups and you care more about fitting into that group and showing that you're a good member of that group than you care about anything else. And in particular, than you do about the truth. And if with the totalitarian or puritanical cult, if the truth would make you break ranks from that group, you must suppress the truth. You must, in fact, go to war with the truth and you must go to war with anybody who presents the truth, whether by speaking it, by showing it, or even by being a living embodiment of it. You see that, for example, with uh, the radical wings of Islam that say that you have to destroy the infidels. The very existence of somebody who doesn't believe their religion reminds them that somebody might not believe their religion. So that has to be destroyed utterly. That's puritanical or totalitarian thinking. Um, communists are very, very strong at this. There's the people who are building socialism that Mao said are the people, and they're the people who are resisting the building of socialism. They're the enemies of the people. And he taught the people to hate the enemies of the people. Meanwhile, teaching them that if you step one step out of line, you go to the enemy side. You're not part of us anymore. And um, that's how these cults actually work. So it's not whether things are true or false at the first layer. What it is, is a question of who do you identify as? The Christian thing that I just gave for how to break through this wall ends with adopting a Christian identity. You're born again in Christ, and now you're a Christian, so now you have something to commit to to try to do um, better in the world or whatever. Um, there are a lot of other alternatives. That's a very good one, but you could identify as a truth seeker or as an independent thinker. Or I mean, there's other possible uh, identities that you could adopt for yourself. But the fact is that people are thinking in terms of these social groups and the when it's a totalitarian or puritanical cult, they heap shame upon you for having any association physical, mental, intellectual, or just, you know, your own levels of beliefs aligning with the outgroups, with, with the bad guys. For our world, they've for 50, 60 years set up that conservatives are embarrassing. Uh, 
So anything you believe that's coded by them as conservative is shameful. So people, that's John Stewart at The Daily Show did most of that magic trick. Um, you get you, it's constantly laugh at those people, laugh at those people, laugh at well, being laughed at feeling of shame. And so they've set this up to where, oh, well, I want to be a good person, but oh, I wouldn't want to be a conservative or I couldn't vote Republican or whatever it happens to be. I couldn't vote Tory. I couldn't vote whatever. It doesn't matter what the what the thing is. And that is the mentality that has to be broken through. And the way that you do it is by offering the truth, letting people come to it on their own terms and their own time, telling them that a lot of people get sucked into this stuff. It's not a big deal if you did. You can say you're sorry, basically, and move forward. You can you can repent of that error and and move forward, leave it behind you instead of being trapped by it. Um, just a just little question on on the ideology. I think um, one of the strongest identities is is gender, uh, whether you're male or female. I mean, uh, I guess uh, as a Christian, faith is also a very strong identity. But I think I'm a guy. I'm a bloke. That that's a major part of identity and um, the whole trend i mean we've seen it kind of beginning to break down in the uk with sports uh, with prisons uh debate over actually if someone decides they're a different gender that doesn't necessarily mean they can participate in sports and prisons uh, certainly in the last two months we've seen a, a breakdown and um, it's intriguing because the transgender move goes against that um basic identity of male and female and it's interesting how it's progressed so far but i wonder just me to finish off on one of those woke ideologies uh, the trans movement whether you think that is collapsing or beginning to break down yeah well it, it's certainly out over its skis as we say it's it's gone out ahead of its skis so it looks like it's starting to to collapse and break down but what it does is shifts to another topic when that happens the race thing kind of got overplayed, so they shift to the gender thing. The gender thing gets overplayed. Now they're shifting to immigration. We can see that in real time. You can get used to and start to predict their moves, and it's going to be the exact same garbage, the exact same form, just a new issue. Uh, but yes, certainly it is. I think that they incurred a net loss in terms of public support by pushing the gender issue as hard as they did. Gender is, in fact, not just an identity that's core to everybody. It's in fact very primal. When I say identity here, I mean essential identity. If you're male, you're male. If you're female, you're female. That's very controversial things to say these days, but that's who you are in your essence and that cannot be changed. It has to do with which gametes your body would produce under healthy, normal development during the period of fertility. It, there's no ambiguity in that whatsoever. None. It's not about characteristics on the outside. It's not about personality traits. It's not about clothing. It's not about body shape. It's not about any of that. It's it's a completely unambiguous um, fact. And it, in fact, is one of the very, very first pieces of identity. In fact, it might be the first piece of identity that all people come to understand about themselves. So as you grow up, developmental psychology in many respects is kind of this adventure as your brain and body develop in determining and understand coming to grips with who you are. And the first thing anybody who's had little kids knows this. The first thing little kids latch onto is I'm a boy. I'm a girl. Daddy's a boy. Mommy's a girl. Like they're very, very rigid about it. And the, the data back this up, the data show that the first identity forming uh, structure that your brain develops as a very young child breaks the world into four 
pieces, two axes, um, adult versus child and male versus female. So there are men, there are women, there are boys and there are girls. And you and everybody in the constellation of people you've ever heard of is one of those. And by golly, they are just one of them. And it's so strict and, 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 and really, really rigid for most kids for a period of time. And it's natural that it's rigid because they are learning the very first step of identifying themselves. So when, when you see people trying to bend that or, or make it fluid or make it ambiguous or whatever, especially when they start trying to teach children that, we have a very, very strong reaction that something is very not good you're going up against something extraordinarily primal to what it means to be human. And when you do that, there's limits to how much you're going to be able to get away with before you lose a lot of people. And I think as effective as it was, and as many people bought into it as, as did under this banner of what well, we've got to be inclusive, uh, which is a, you know, it'd be shameful not to be inclusive to bring it kind of full circle. You also have butted up against something that's just so deeply ingrained and so obviously the case and the fact and so meaningful to who we are that um, you can almost picture the skier like tipping forward and getting out literally ahead of his skis as they've spent a couple of years pushing that one so hard. And I think that it is, I, I, I said back in 2018 and 19 that if they ever went full bore into the, what's called the queer theory aspect of this, that it would be their undoing. And I have a feeling that I will be, although this immigration thing is going to be ugly, I have a feeling I will have that, uh, my, my prediction will be borne out. Um, I think that we will actually resist the immigration, the, what I'm calling critical immigration theory push much more effectively because they cross the line way too hard with the gender stuff. And I think it may have been their undoing. James, always good to have you on. Obviously, people can find you at Conceptual James. And let me just bring up, there is the website, newdiscourses.com. Uh, also, make sure and make use of that. Uh, James, appreciate your time, as always. Thank you so much for coming along and unpacking that really intriguing thread that people can find in the description. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me talk about it. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.